Dear God, our, our spirits rejoice before You. We've already been much in worship. We've sensed Your presence, the Holy Spirit hovering over this wintry community, snowbound, but our hearts ablaze with gratitude for who You are. We continue to worship You. Let, let Your portrait be front and center over the next few moments. Let us see what we must see so that we might be what we must be. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we plunge into this new series. It's called The Radicals. I'll put it up on the screen for you because uh, that's the only time we're going to put this title slide up. The Radicals. This generation, this world, this time. We're focusing on... Radical followers of Christ, radical followers of God. And, and what we've done is we've looked at the, the radical Abraham and then we looked at the radical Paul. And I'm telling you the problem with that, here's the, here's the, here's the downside. When we are faced with such high octane radical followers, it is hugely intimidating. If not for you, then at least for me. I'm never going to be an Abraham. I'm never going to be a Paul. So we need to kind of counterbalance the picture a bit so we realize... The call is for all of us. You don't have to be high-octane anything. You're called to be radical. And so we're going to go today to someone who's, who would be called a don't-want-to-be radical. Scholars tell us his name meant dove. Some scholars believe that that was not his name. That was actually a nickname like chicken, dove, too timid. Too afraid, maybe. But I'll tell you this, if it's true, what we believe, and that is he composed the book in the third person. He, com- he wrote his own story. Listen to this. It took a major amount of courage to be as brutally honest about himself as he is in the Dove's book. That's what I like about the third millennials, by the way. I loved that about Sarah a moment ago. She said, I felt intimidated. I was scared. I felt like a failure. That's what I love about third millennials. Open, candid, vulnerable, taking risks, telling the truth. Boomers, we were trained to always put the best face forward. Just like a PR firm, always the best, the best, the best. You have a lot to teach us. So you're going to identify. You're going to identify with the dove. Let's go to his story. His story is composed around 13 infrastructure questions. And it's the 13th question that's the tripwire that gets us to our truth today. Open your Bible to the book of Jonah, the dove. Jonah. I'm going to ask our organist to step to the organ and play for five minutes because it's going to take you that long to find Jonah. So just go ahead. (laughs) We'll be here for a while. Jonah, you know where Jonah is? Old Testament, that's a clue. It's in the the, uh, Minor Prophets. Book of Jonah. You say, Dwight, I can't find it. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. Let me give you a page number. It's page 623 in the pew Bible. Jonah, come on. You find Daniel, you're on the way. Daniel, Hosea, Joe, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. One of the minor prophets packing a major wallop for our theme. We're looking at missions. We're looking at a globe that must be reached. Not just South Bend, not just Benton Harbor. The entire planet has to be reached by this generation. All right, so let's find, uh, find Jonah. Jonah, chapter 1. New King James, that's what I'm in. That'll be what uh, the Pew Bible is. Jonah, chapter 1, 
Those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you. The, web, the, the study guide today, by the way, you can get the study guide. Dynamite quotations. We're getting to them. No fill in the blanks today. No fill in the blanks. You don't have to panic like I've got to get something to write in now. Not today. But uh, you, you do want that study guide. So you go to that website you saw a moment ago. All right, let's go. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the dove, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But, verse 3, but Jonah arose. He did the arising part. He got that part right. He arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Boy, I tell you, I'd hate to live in a town called Tarshish. You'd never get it right when they ask you. And by the way, we don't know where Tarshish is. We don't know. I have no clue. Probably, probably west of uh, Israel. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it, the boat, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now hit the pause button right there. We're going to question number one. Thirteen infrastructure questions define this story. We're heading to question number one, but we're hitting the pause button because did you catch something? There's been a phrase that has been repeated in the first three verses. Amazing. Now, if Jonah is writing about himself, which we believe he is, and it were in the first person, he said, hey, listen, what I did was I bought a ticket. I bought a ticket and jumped on board a boat sailing west away from the presence of the Lord. And he uses that away from the presence of the Lord. He uses that phrase twice. You know what's going on? Here's what's going on. Jonah has concluded that his faith and his patriotism, his faith and his nationalism are to be bound up as one. And so when, because he believes that the God of Israel is only the God of Israel and he lives only in Israel, Jonah's figuring, I'm getting away. I'm getting away from him. He's going to stay where he lives and I'm going out here where he is not. Jonah has bound up his faith with nationalism, patriotism. And I'm afraid American Christians have done the very same thing. We have wrapped our Christianity with the American flag. Have it on our platform. We've wrapped it. And we conclude that somehow, we don't ever say it this way, but we, we conclude that the God and the Christ, the Christianity, are super American citizens. Out to advance our culture and our vision of the world. Just like Jonah. Faith wrapped by nationalism and patriotism to the place, to the place. When American armies go into Iraq and American armies go into Afghanistan, in our mind, minds as American Christians, all right, God, you got to help these boys and girls. you got to make them win because it's you against whoever is out there. Our God against their God. Our religion against their religion. And don't you, don't you be looking at me like, whoa, what kind of creatures are these, these Americans? Because Adventist Americans, I'm sorry to tell you, are, are, are the very same way. I don't know how many Adventists have forwarded to me a little YouTube clip about Muslims taking over the population of the United Kingdom and the United States because of the fertility, and they actually uh, log the fertility of Muslim women. They're eventually going to control America. Aren't we something? Jonah says, hey, my God lives in my country and he's, he, he is my religion. He's not out here, so I'm running out here where he will not be. My. 
Okay, we're on our way to the first question. Verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so, so that the ship was about to be broken up. I've sailed the Atlantic. I've sailed the Pacific. I'm telling you, when you hit big ships, big, big high seas, even in a big ship, it's bad news. And these guys, these are experienced mariners. Look at this, verse 5. Then the mariners, these are sailors. The mariners were afraid. When the old salts are scared for their lives, you know you're in big trouble. And the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. And threw the cargo that was, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. You can't believe this. Verse 6, so the captain came down into the, the bowels of that Phoenician skiff. The captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Question number one. What do you mean, sleeper? What are you doing here? And then I love this. Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. I mean, the boat is going down. Jonah is fast asleep. And God, even though he's a runaway missionary, I'm telling you, this, you'll see this picture of God over and over in this short little story. God keeps hanging on to the guy. And you know what he's just done to Jonah? He has given him a perfect missionary moment. It's an Elijah moment. You know what Jonah should have said? The captain says, okay, you call in your gods. You call in your God. Jonah should have said, hey, let's do it. You call on your gods. I will call on my God. And the God who stops this storm is the true God. High five. Let's go. He missed his moment. A runaway missionary. God is still hoping he might change his mind. I'm going to give you a home run pitch now. Jonah, just swing at this ball, will you? And he stands there. Not a word. Not a word. Ah. All right, here come now. Here they come. Questions two, two, three, four, five, six. So, Jonah goes up with the captain. Top side. Down. Spray. Salt. We're dying. Davy Jones locker. Here we come. He goes up on the top side. And the, and the, and the sailors say, all right. We're going to find out. Yo! It's over the wind. Yo! We're casting lots. Draw. And Jonah draws. It's you. It's you. You're the one for the storm. It's you. And notice this. This is where the questions two through six come. Verse eight. Then they said to him, please tell us. For whose cause is this trouble upon us? Question two. What is your occupation? Question three. Where did you come from? Question four. What is your country? Question five. And of what people are you? Question six. Like a prosecuting attorney. Can't do that again. Like a prosecuting attorney. Boom, 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 boom. Jonah says, hey, whoa. Boat heaving, pitching. So I'll tell you who I am. I'm a Hebrew. My God is the creator of the universe. I mean, the heavens and the earth and the seas and the waters. And now comes question seven. They hear it. This would be verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Why would you do this to your God? Verse 11, here comes question 8. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more impetuous. And Jonah, because he's like third millennials, is very brutal. Self-analysis, no PR firm writes my biography. And Jonah says, 
Here's what you do. Pick me up. Throw me overboard. Because I'm the reason this storm has come. Throw me overboard. My God will take care of you. It's my fault. Mia culpa. That's what he was doing. It's my fault. There'd be a whole lot more happy marriages if one of the two could squeeze out the courage to say, it's my fault. It's my fault. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, we had a place that was packed last night with undergraduates. Free supper, by the way, next Friday night. And a video series on marriage. Dynamite. Karen and I got to be there to welcome everybody to the opening. So proud of our Something in Common Sabbath School for putting it on. No charge to university students. Home-cooked meal. Look at marriages. It's my fault. How many, how many office teams could be saved if just one of them would have the guts to say, It's my fault. I take the responsibility for this. It's my fault. Mia culpa. Oh, when they, verse 13. Oh, no, no, verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, we pray, O Lord. They're now praying to the God of Israel, by the way. We pray, O Yahweh God, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, Israel's God, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and boom, the sea supernaturally goes calm. Just not hours for the waves to slowly reach China. Just boom, stops. Oh, and they know. Watch this then. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. The missionary, the missionary may be a runaway, but the missionary God is not off duty. And he's saving them right and left even though he's lost his main man. Isn't that something? They throw Jonah in the water. You know the story. Out of the depths of the dark sea. Amazing. Amazing story. So we've had eight questions so far. And now verse 17, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then what follows in chapter 2? Not a single question. Not a single question. Just the prayer of a desperate, lost man to God. And the prayer ends with the theme verse of the entire short four-chapter story. Verse 9. Look at this. This is the theme of the whole book. You'll see this. Verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you. He's, he's wrapped in kelp. All right? He's inside the gastric juices of that fish. But I will sacrifice to you, O God, with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed, for salvation is of the Lord. Write that down in your brain, will you? Salvation comes from God. That's the whole point. Salvation is of the Lord. We've seen it. He saved a pagan, mariners, probably the captain too. He saved a runaway prophet, missionary. And as we all know, he's just about to save an entire lost city. Ah, that old gospel hymn. Our minister of music a few weeks ago picked it. Didn't know this was coming. Picked that uh, hymn and we sang it together. We have heard a joyful noise. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the glad news all abroad. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. You know what that means, don't you? 
There is no depth that you have been thrown into by life circumstances or your own choices. There is no depth too deep for God to not be able to find you there. And He has a rescue mission just for you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't care how young you are. There is no depth that you have sunk to that God cannot find you there and bring you back to salvation. Wow. I've heard a joyful sound. Jesus saves. Uh, we're ready now. We're ready now for question number nine. First, we need to, uh, we need to get Jonah out of that whale. We have a pet dog at our home named Sadie Hawkins. She's 15 years old. We got her on February 29. And so little Sadie's been with us for years. She can throw Karen and me. And when the kids are home, the same. She can, she can throw us into an adrenaline rush. The moment she starts making the sounds, the intimations of vomiting. Boy, I tell you, when you hear that, grab that dog, get her off of the carpet now. She's going. I have no idea what a whale sounds like when he vomits. But he came out, hallelujah. And it is the sound, I tell you what the sound is, it's the it's sound of the God who is the God of second chances. That's the sound. He's the God of second chances. Vomits him. Well, that's what it says here. What is it? Verse, verse, verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish. Everybody in the story is obedient except Jonah. So the Lord spoke to the fish. That's true. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now keep reading because we've got to find question nine. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He's the God of second chances. And by the way, some of you have been running from God. And it may not be over what Jonah was running running from God over. But you've been running from God. I'm telling you what. Unless you say, Holy Spirit, never speak to me again. God will be after you. He's not only the God of, of, of second chances, He's the God of 70 times 70 chances. He'll keep coming back again. Get that boy. Get that girl. Don't take no for an answer. Don't let him go. Don't let her go. That's the God of Jonah. He comes back to Jonah. And the Lord said to Jonah the second time, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose, obedient now. He's been saved. Hallelujah. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A three-day journey in extent. If you have the Andrew Study Bible, you can just look down there and it'll say, yep, scholars think it's probably 13 kilometers around that city. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, verse 4, and then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And on the next day he said, Thirty-nine days, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And on the next day he said, Thirty-eight days, and it's curtains for you. Thirty-seven, thirty-six, thirty-five. He preaches them all. Verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king himself. Be like Mayor Bloomberg in New York City saying, I'm declaring a citywide fast for the 15 million people in this city that God will have mercy on us and not destroy us 
like he's promised. The king. Now, the ninth question comes at the end of his proclamation. Drop to the very end. Verse 9. The king writing to his people. Who can tell if God will, re- God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Maybe God will change his mind. Fast and pray. Oh, I tell you what. Trying to get a safe community to fast and pray is like pulling nails or teeth. But a lost community that knows it needs God. Just like that to its knees. Maybe that's our problem. We don't think we need Him. They go to their knees. And how does God respond? Look at this, verse 10. Then God saw their works. They turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them. And He did not Do it. Apparently, God can save an entire city if He chooses. Isn't that something? An entire city if He pleases. No matter how wicked. Because Nineveh was the worst of the worst. God saved Nineveh. And look how happy Jonah is. The most successful evangelist in history. An entire city. We we know of no city this size that was converted. With a 40-day series. Look at Jonah. Verse 1, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He became angry. You can be saved, but still be angry. So he prayed, verse 2, to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? I've heard so many stories of Jonah told how he's afraid of the wicked city Nineveh. He's not afraid of the wicked city Nineveh. He went. But here now we know his objection. If I go, you will be so good, you will save them. That's what you do, and I don't want Nineveh saved. Because you're our God, and you live in our country. I'm not going. He's not afraid of Nineveh. He just doesn't want God to be good. He knows Nineveh is bad, but he doesn't want God to be good. But he has a sneaky suspicion God will be what he is. And he was. Oh. I was still in my country. Didn't I tell you this? Therefore, keep going. Verse 2. Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Question 10. Didn't I tell you you were going to do this? That's question 10. Now God comes with question 11. Then the Lord said, verse 4, Is it right for you to be angry? That question is so important, God repeats it. 11 and 12, the same question. Is it right for you to be angry, Noah? Noah, Jonah. And Jonah storms up in a huff and a puff. Finds a spot outside of Nineveh, still hoping for a spectacular divine pyrotechnics. Fire from heaven. Okay, God, I'm outside now. Nuke him. And all he gets is a little vine from God that grows over his head. Shields him from the sun, though. It's nice to have that vine. But the next day, Jonah's still waiting for fire to fall. He also gets from God a little worm that eats the vine that dries up and the hot sun about kills him. I wish that I could die. So God comes to him. Here's question number 12, verse 9. And God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant 
Jonah says, it's right for me to be angry about the plan even to death. But then, listen, listen to God's reasoning here, verse 10. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you had not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I, here, question number 13, now here's the tripwire. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. And we have often concluded that that means there are 120,000 people who don't, don't know good... Good from evil, right from wrong. Now scholars are now saying, no, 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 no. This is really true. They don't know their right, right hand from their left hand. Who, what age group does not know the right hand from the left hand? Three and under. There are 120,000 children. You ask a little two-year-old, show me, honey, your right hand. Well, which one is the left one? Doesn't know. Doesn't know. 120,000 just of the children, add the teenagers, add the young adults, the adults. Some scholars believe it's between 600,000 and 1 million people that God is describing as belonging to Nineveh. You're ticked off by a little plant that died that you didn't even put it up in the first place. Shouldn't I be concerned? Shouldn't I be concerned about a million people that I made? And oh, by the way, look at the end of verse, verse 11. Oh, by the way, and a whole lot of livestock as well. Jonah wants to nuke them all. Just like the Adventists. who say, even so, come Lord Jesus today so that I can get saved. Nuke the rest, just save me. That's what you're saying. Every time you're telling God, it's time for you to come for me. I'm ready. You're saying, nuke the rest, save me. That is the craziest prayer to ever pray as an Adventist. Look at the heart of this God. Not radical Jonah. It's radical God in this story. Radical God. The end. It's over. That's all Jonah wrote. But it's enough. Because in these four short chapters of this single tale... There is an utterly radical, profound depiction of God's mercy for all His children. He is the God of mercy for everybody. Look at it. He look, he's, he's, the one, he's the one who saw Nineveh. And said, hey, I've got to find somebody to save Nineveh. Hey, Jonah, I need you to go for me. He had mercy on Nineveh before there ever was a missionary. He had mercy on the pagans and saved them all. He had mercy on a runaway prophet. Sent a whale so that he wouldn't drown. He had mercy on the inside the whale missionary. Saved him. Had mercy on the entire city. Had mercy on the children. Had mercy on the cattle. Mercy. He has mercy. He has mercy on them all. I tell you what, there is... Can I, can I do this? There is a wideness. There is a wideness. Let's put that on the screen, please. There is a wideness. That's the line I don't want you to forget. That's the Bible teaching today. There is a wideness in God's mercy. Ah, Jonah. Jonah theoretically accepts divine mercy, but he does not experientially embrace it. After all, think about this. In Jonah's mind, if you fail, you die. Nineveh is wicked. It is morally failed. It dies. Jonah has professionally failed. Let me die. In Jonah's mind, no mercy. You die if you fail. A lot of us live by that same credo. You die if you fail. So we are scared of failure. Afraid. 
And that's why, by the way, Jonah is so sadly detached from those he considers already lost. He's got it up here. He doesn't have it in here. And I wonder, I'm thinking out loud with you, I wonder if our contemporary missions struggle can be laid at the feet of our Jonah-esque acceptance of mercy in theory, but not in practice. Let me give you an example. Back in 2007, I preached a sermon or two on Islam. And some network a few weeks ago, decided to rerun the sermons last month. I have no idea what network did. But some viewer somewhere went ballistic and began a forwarded email declaring, Dr. Dwight Nelson is teaching Islam to the Adventist church. (laughs) The email a few days ago reached my employer. Now, I'm grateful, very, that one of my administrators decided to listen to the suspect sermon And found it to be both biblical and true, which he wrote, much to my gratitude, back to the individual who had forwarded the email charges to the administration. What was the big rub? What did I say that raised the ire of these defenders of the truth? I simply acknowledged that Allah, the Muslim name for God, that Allah is the same Most High God that I worship. I said, hey, 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 hey. To the Jews, He's Elohim. To the English-speaking Christians, He's God. To the Spanish-speaking Christians, He's Dios. To the Japanese-speaking Christians, He's Kamisama. And to the Muslims, He's Allah. In fact, there are Arab Christians today who call God Allah because it's the name of God. Now, what really stirred up a hornet's nest, apparently, was when I went on and suggested, in rather... Uh, deeply convicted ways by saying something to this effect. I don't want to hear anybody declaring that Allah is another name for Satan and that Muslims are worshiping the devil. We have people advancing that proposition on the face of this earth. What right do we have to declare That 1.4 billion Muslims, monotheists like we are, are in fact worshiping Satan instead. What right do we have? I want to ask you a question. Are Muslims lost because they are Muslims? Let me rephrase the question. Are Christians saved because they are Christians? The answer is no. You're not saved because of who you are. You're not saved because of what you believe. You're saved because Jesus saves. And mercy comes a-running to the likes of you and me. That's how you get saved. There's no title that gets you in or keeps you out. I remind you, Jonah was a believer in the Most High God. He embraced, embraced, like you and I do, all the divine truth in the Scripture of his day. But did that save Jonah? It did not save him. He was lost. Believing the truth, he was lost and had to get saved in the belly of a whale. And that's how it was that Nineveh got saved, by the way. Did the Ninevites become Israelites for God to have mercy on them? They did not. They became believers in the Most High God, saved them. By the way, that's the way it was with Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of Babylon. Did Nebuchadnezzar become a Jew like Daniel in order to get saved? No. All he did was accept Daniel's God, the Most High God, saved. 
By the way, that's the way it was with Naaman, the Syrian general, who came to Israel because of his leprosy and is sent by the God of Israel into the muddy Jordan River to get healed. When Naaman comes back up out of that water, did he become an Israelite? No, he did not. In fact, this catches some people by surprise, but it really is in the Bible. In 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman, as he's getting ready to go back to the king, the pagan king of Syria, says, Prophet Elisha, look it, there are times when I have to take the king on my arm and we go before the gods and he bows down. Would I get your permission, please, to bow down to those gods with the king? And you know what Elisha said? Go in peace. Boy, if he had asked us... Go in peace. He's a God of mercy. Isn't that something? Jonah figures that divine mercy can be extended only to people with a belief system just like his. But quite to the contrary, he discovered in the end that it is divine mercy that saves both the lost and the saved in the end. There is a wideness in God's mercy. That's the point. A wideness in God's mercy. That's why our missiology, and I've got some missiologists here. What's missiology? That means the science and study of missions, the strategic way to communicate the everlasting gospel to the world. That is why our missiology must embrace God's mercy as heaven's chosen and radical modus operandi. It's strategy for salvation. The God's strategy for salvation is mercy. It's mercy. Just look at Nineveh, the greatest missionary story in the Old Testament. It's mercy. Otherwise, like Jonah, we will tragically, can you believe this? We will tragically write off 1.4 billion Muslims because of our self-determined judgment that they are worshiping Satan. Ah, You can't do that. You just can't do that. You can't. What are we going to do with these words of Christ? Put it on the screen for you. These are red letter. If we took the time to look them up in our Bibles, this is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus speaking. And he has a pagan Roman centurion standing right in front of him. I say to you, he's speaking to the Jews around him. I say to you that many will come from the east, that would be Islam, and from the west, that would be the secular atheist west, we would think of it today. Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But let me say something to you who belong to the truth. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's pretty stiff stuff. And it came from the Lord Himself. Your argument now is not with me anymore. You're now arguing with Jesus. What are we going to do with this promise of God? This is one of the great missionary prayers in the Bible. It's Psalm 87. Let's put it on the screen here. This is God speaking. He's He's telling about the places He goes on earth to find the saved. Where He goes to save people. I, God speaking, will make mention of Rahab. That would be the children of the East, Islam. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon. Those would be just sheer, plain pagans. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. And behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, I'm going to say from all these nations, this one was born there. When God says this one was born there, He's saying, I'm treating them like they were born in Zion. They're born saved. They're born again. I'm going to say from all these regions, this one was born. Look at the next line. And of Zion. Oh, I'm going to find saved people even in Zion. Watch this. And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself shall establish her. One more. And the Lord will record when He registers the peoples of earth, this one was born there. 
I know you were born among the Muslims. I know you were born among the Hindus. I know you were born among the Buddhists. But I'm going to register you as being born in my city, Zion. Isn't that something? Peter must have been right. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Peter, what are you saying? Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Now watch this. But in every nation, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, in every nation, whoever fears Him, I don't care who it is, whoever fears the Most High God and works righteousness is accepted by Him. Wow! Maybe our problem is we're like Jonah. Intellectually, we embrace divine mercy. Experientially, nobody gets it. Not even me. And that's why we're so hard on ourselves, by the way. And why we're struggling to find good news in Christianity and in Adventism. We have no mercy. We won't even give mercy to ourselves. What are we going to do with this profound declaration by Ellen White? Let me put it on the screen for you. This is something else. Desire of Ages, the classic on the life of Jesus. These are all in your study guide, by the way, so when, make sure you don't throw your bulletin away before pulling the quotes out and sticking them in your Bible. Those, she's writing here in Desire of Ages, those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology. They never knew what you and I know. Little of theology. But they have cherished His principles through the influence of the Divine Spirit they have been a blessing to those about them. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly. How dare us to declare they're not worshiping God, they're worshiping the devil. Can you see how wrong such a judgment is? Who gave us the authority to make the judgment about who people are worshiping anyway? God alone decides who they're worshiping. Isn't that something? Among the heathen are those who worship God, the living God, the same God I worship every day. Are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, they never hear the name of Christ, yet they will not perish, though ignorant of the written law of God. They have heard His voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts. And isn't this something? They are recognized as the children of God and will go home with Him one day. Hallelujah! Absolutely. There is a wideness in God's mercy. Like the wideness of the sea. We want Him to be a little pond in our backyard. And He has the whole world in His embrace. The Australian scholar Gerald Minchin, Adventist, taught briefly at Andrews about a half a century ago, according to the Encyclopedia, peace on him. He wrote an unpublished paper entitled The Salvation of the Heathen. I want you to listen to what he wrote. You can take this quote home as well. Put Minchin's words on the screen. Is it not assuming too much? We're going too far, he suggested. Is it not assuming too much to suggest that the labors of the Holy Spirit on behalf of men and women are limited to a group who have heard the name of Christ? Only those who have heard His name get saved. 
Now, there are major pockets, major swaths of evangelical Christianity that believe only those who hear the name of Jesus get saved. So I've got to get out there, got to get out there quick, 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 quick. He says, isn't this pushing it a little bit? Listen to the reasoning. Keep going. Rather, the teaching of Scripture is that God seeks men and women everywhere, regardless of artificial distinctions raised by accident of birth and parentage. Oh, my, I'm so sorry you weren't living in Israel when Jesus came. Where'd you live? China? Ah, bad break. Why'd you choose to be born in China anyway? Is that what God's going to do? You didn't live around the basin of the Mediterranean where you could have been saved in the first century. You got bad luck, China. Oh, come on. Mention the saying, it can't be. Artificial distinctions raised by accident of birth and parentage. Keep going. The lost sheep are not all of this fold, although it is intended that eventually they will be. It is inconceivable that God has totally disregarded the man in the jungles, leaving him without witness and hope. Too bad. May it not be true that God seeks to break into the consciousness of men, make a divine encounter anywhere and everywhere? Don't you think the God you and I love is just that way? One last question. May we not be guilty of the same exclusiveness that cost Israel their special relationship to God if we fail to recognize the hand of God in the total affairs of men and not only in one segment? You know what's clear to me, ladies and gentlemen? This is a radical God, not a radical Jonah. This is the God is the radical in this story. Here's what's occurred to me. The story of Jonah clearly declares that God is the Lord of all nations. And hold on to your pew. He's the Lord of all religions. I'm above all. I'm above all. I will get my finger into a, into a mind, into a heart, into a life. Any religion on earth you can give me, I'll get there. I'm the Lord of all religions and all nations. He takes personal responsibility for reaching all nations and all religions. After all, they are his children. Jonah makes it clear that no matter how pagan the nation or the religion, God still seeks its repentance and salvation. Who is Jonah? Who are you and me? You and I to declare what nation or what religion is hopelessly lost. What if God's mercy is no respecter of persons? I don't care who they are. I will save whom I will save. And I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. What if God's that way? As He appears to be in Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Please. Jonah, Joe, Joe, Joe. Should not I have mercy on Nineveh, that great city? 1.4 billion Muslims. Throw in another million, a billion Hindus. Throw in another billion secular pagans. Should I not have mercy on them too? Why not? There's a wideness. There is a wideness in God's mercy. Like the wideness of the sea. So you're saying, Dwight, what's this have to do with you and me? And this generation being called to be radicals has everything to do with us. You know what it means, don't you? It means that just like Jonah, just, just like the God of Jonah, we need to be on missions of mercy. That's what it means. Isn't this amazing how you think about this? The only time Jesus ever gives a sign... A lot of times just blowing them away. We want a sign. Forget it. The only time he gives a sign to prove that he's from heaven. The Pharisees come to him and they say, give us a sign that you are from heaven. Jesus said, all right, I'll give you a sign. I will give you the sign of Jonah. Isn't that amazing? He picks the story where the God of the universe in mercy saves a pagan lost city. And he says, that's the sign that I am that God. 
For as Jonah was buried three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so the Son of Man will be buried three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. I am the God of Jonah. I am the Lord of mercy. I am the Savior of the world. That's your sign. Well, if He's the God of mercy, then I suppose we ought to be the people of mercy, don't you? Please. God comes down and dies on a cross so that we might live the life that is His. Freely we have received mercy. Freely then we must give mercy. And that's why for 31 days at Andrews University in the Pioneer Memorial Church, we are praying a single prayer. I hope you've been praying it every day. I have, morning and night. Pray with me. I've typed it up on a little pieces of paper. I have it everywhere in my house so that I run into it. Here's that prayer. We've been praying this. Oh, God. Pray it out loud with me, will you? Let's just read this out loud. Oh, God, give me your heart for this lost world and I will go anywhere in the world you send me. That's a simple little prayer. Oh, God, give me your heart. God of Jonah, Lord of Nineveh, give me your heart. Give me your mercy, God. Give me your mercy. And you know what, God? If you, will give me your, if you will give me your mercy, I will go anywhere in the world you send me. I will not say no. I will not run away by your grace. By your mercy, I will go. I had a student give me a note this last week. I'm impressed to do mission work. It's been, been part of this series. I'm impressed to do mission work. I just don't know where to go. I need clearer vision. Good for you. Good for you. Before this series is over, and it ends on March 5, before this series is over, you're going to be given opportunities, specific opportunities to respond. We're not just going to get ourselves all excited about overseas and then nobody responds. No, you've got, you, you've got to pray this prayer for 31 days first so that you will respond the way God wishes for you to respond. I don't know what that will is. It doesn't matter. 31 days. Oh, God, please give me your heart. And I'll go anywhere you send me in this world. Robert Frost, the great American poet and writer. One sentence from him. After Jonah, after Jonah, you could never trust God not to be merciful again. Isn't that good? And I might add, after Calvary, why would you ever not want God to be merciful again and again? And again, until Jesus comes. I want our musicians to come on up here. There's a great song. It's an old hymn. I'll put the words on the screen for you. It's the, it's the teaching of today's moments together. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in His justice that is more than liberty. Stand to your feet. We're not going to take a long introduction here. Stand to your feet and we're going to sing three stanzas of this beautiful, beautiful hymn.
because of that mercy that is so wide that it embraces the entire civilization of this planet. It is because of the wideness of your mercy that we stand with gratitude before you now. Mercy has found us. Now, O oh God, we are in debt to mercy. We must go to find all your earth children with the merciful glad tidings that the God of mercy has saved them and is coming soon to take them home. Make us into your image that the heart of Christ our Lord will be ours as well. And now may the love of the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Spirit be with you and me as we go with Him. Amen.